Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of British produce and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the show which celebrates the best food and drink found on our doorsteps. On this episode, we're speaking to Gregory Marshall of New Scottish Sea Salt's Blackthorn Salt. Fergus the Forager is here to talk about wax cap mushrooms. If you aren't familiar, just have a ghoul of them. They look incredible. And they really make me want to watch the fantastic fungi documentary that everyone is raving about. But first, here's an update from the food world. Lyle's, the Michelin-starred restaurant in Shoreditch, founded by James Lowe, will be delivering provision boxes and meal kits filled with seasonal treats to doorsteps across the UK. James will be packing boxes full of his favourite dishes and pantry items to be enjoyed at home, from British games shot in the Highlands to his signature mince pies. The provisions box comes with his mince pie mix, made with aged beef mince from retired Jersey dairy cows, and homemade pastry ready to be assembled and baked in the oven. Dedicated mince pie kits can also be ordered separately with enough mince meat and pastry cases for 12 pies, as well as a tray to bake them on. Not content with being the first champagne house to launch an English fizz with other people's grapes, Champagne Pommery is now producing English fizz with its own grown English grapes. Ideal weather conditions in 2020 have meant expectations are running high for the first vintage of Louis Pommery England, created from their own grapes grown on a chalky south-facing hillside near Winchester. This first vintage is expected to be released in 2023. Lastly, it's good news for those who live in the Bristol area. The Eggleton family, who own the Michelin-starred Pony and Trap and Chew Magna, have announced they're opening a second restaurant in South Bristol. Posting on Instagram about a second pony, the restaurant said details would be coming soon. The new restaurant will be on North Street, but that's all we know for now. So those are your three foodie things on your doorstep this week. I'm now joined by Gregory. Well, Gregory, it's lovely to have you on the Doorstep Kitchen. How are you and what have you been up to? Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, we've just launched a new salt. Uh, it's, it's taken us a long time getting there, I think. Um, but uh, we've managed and uh, we've got what I suppose we think is a brilliant salt. But um, also uh, lots of other people do as well. So we're, we're very lucky in that respect. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's quite tricky because uh, um, we weren't able to experiment or anything. Uh, we, you know, we just built the jar and the pan and everything, pulled it all together. And it wasn't until we had evaporated the first water and put the first um, brine into the pan that we could actually taste the salt. And it was a huge relief that it um, tasted so good. I mean, what, I mean, what's unique about it, apart from the taste, is is that we use something called a, a thorn tower or a graduation tower, uh, which is uh, 25 metres long and 8 metres high. And it's uh, stuffed full of blackthorn, uh, which is slow bushes. I, I don't know if you know or if, you, if you've been picking slows. Yeah, I've picked some slows already this year. They're absolutely huge. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, perfect. Yes, it's been a... Very good this year, this year, for some reason. Um, it was probably to do with the sun or, or the, uh, the late frost at the end of last winter. Um, but some trees seem to suffer with the late frost but this year. But the slaves seem to be thriving. Yes, yeah, so it's those bushes that we stack tightly and compacted into the tab. 
And uh, the reason for doing that is is not because we're mad. Well, we probably are a bit, but <laughs> the reason for doing it is that we are taking the uh, seawater and trying to evaporate the water to concentrate uh, the the brine. Um, so we take uh, seawater, which is about three three and a half percent salt, mm-hmm. and we're wanting to get it up to about twenty twenty two percent before we take it off to the pan. So in order to do that, you have to evaporate water, and that can be done in loads of different ways. But we want to do it naturally, and so sadly we're not don't have the same sort of climate in Scotland as we do as as you do in um, the Mediterranean or something, where yeah. you see these huge salt pan flat areas um, where they're evaporating seawater, and it's nice and hot and sunny. We don't have that. So, but um, we do have some sun we do have some wind so it's to look to the best way to take advantage of the natural environment that we have so um, we then look to increase the exposed um, area of water to the wind and the sun so therefore we'll get more evaporation so by taking uh, trickling it so we take we pump the seawater to the top and by trickling it down the tower we're increasing the surface area that's exposed to, to the wind and and to the sun mm. uh, and so rather than just having a, you know if you have a bath for example you know you, you stick in a, a load of water and only the top surface of that water can any evaporation happen that's the only bit that's hit by the hair so if you take that bath water and then you pour it down a surface you're increasing the surface area so by using blackthorn we can increase it more because of those uh, nasty spikes that you've probably been pricked on when you're picking the snows <laughs> yes. they uh, they have more water they allow more water to flow down it and so therefore increase the surface area that that the wind can pass by so mm. and also blackthorn is a is a hardwood so it's, it's a very sort of strong wood and and good for good for salt because well, salt actually um treats timber so it's a very good product to to use when when making anything yeah okay salt, so and um, and you just use blackthorn, well, as you said, because of like the surface area and the thorns, and I guess because it's local and abundant in the west of Scotland. It is local and abundant, but it's very difficult to get out, very difficult to get a hold of, and we needed a, actually a huge amount. So we did, we do have uh, some of it is from Scotland, but actually we had to go abroad to get some some of it. Okay, uh, but. It needs to be replaced every sort of seven to ten years. Right. So we're just looking at a scheme now to. Uh, plant the blackthorn because after about seven to ten years growth is the right time uh, for it to be harvested so then we can get a sort of cycle going so if we mm. we plant it about now then hopefully when we want to replace it we'll have grown enough blackthorn we can then cut it down which which will be a shame we'll have to make sure we pick all the slows before we do that though yeah you'll have to start a slow <laughs> business on the side with slow gin and and exactly. uh, all of that yeah. yes. <laughs> to use yeah. up everything no, I think we probably drink too much gin. But anyway, I'm sure we'd manage. <laughs> salt, salt and gin combo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is a really old technique, isn't it? It is. I think was this um, company in your family for a while? Uh, well, yes. Yeah, so there's well, there's uh, it's two times, I suppose. The uh, yes, I've come from. Uh, I suppose it's been ingrained in my under my skin salt for since since I was born. But it's um, yeah, it's the, it's the larger business is a family business, mm. which. Um, has evolved from being a shipping company uh, 140 odd years ago and and now to I suppose being a salt company and we've sort of been through various guises we sold our 
last ship about 35 years ago and uh, concentrated on salt. But the, the actual the process that makes the salt is, um, is an old technique. Uh, it, was, it was used in sort of Poland and Germany. Uh, it hasn't, hasn't been used for about 50 to 60 years. They still have the structures up there, though, um, and they're used more now as sort of tourist attractions or respiratory uh, centres because um, breathing in uh, salty air is very good for respiratory problems. Um, so they're um, promoted in, for that, and they don't actually make any salt anymore. But they did it, they used different, uh, a different source, so that rather than using seawater, um, they used an underground uh, brine, uh, mm. a sort of brine spring, I suppose, which was about sort of eight, nine percent, so much higher uh, concentration. Before it, you, you know, three times as high almost. So uh, you therefore, you know, you're evaporating sort of need to evaporate much less in order to get to the concentration you need. Mm. Um, but it's. Uh, it's also different impurities and different sort of aspects that go through it. So this is the first tower that's ever done using seawater. Uh, so we have its own own challenges in that. <laughs> um, but trying to get it built was uh, was difficult. I mean, because uh, you know Poland, uh, I did actually go over there to see them, um, but they weren't um, they weren't uh, particularly helpful. I think we I did chat to someone. We had a bit of a, a language barrier. His um, English was non-existent and my Polish was non-existent mm -hmm. and uh, talking through an app and the phone wasn't ideal <laughs> eventually what a sort of translator app yes exactly it didn't <laughs> really help uh, eventually his daughter came down and we did chat for a bit but um, that was the sort of extent of trying to work out how it was and visiting a few so we ultimately just sort of having looked at pictures and stuff designed it uh, and um, you know a bit of help from a company called Graven and a, a sort of there's a structural engineering company in Edinburgh and also a chap called Archie who took on the challenge of building it um, who was great because as you can imagine it's not something well it's something that's never been built in this country and something that you know no one really knows anything about so he was very game to take on the challenge and, and did a great job so him and a team of sort of five of his mates really um, did it so it was fantastic. <laughs> And when, because um, you said it's new, um, when did you like build this tower? How long have you been doing it? Uh, well, we um, we finished building the tower probably over a year ago. Uh, okay. but, but we've been trying to um, work out how it works and sort of fiddling with it and making sure that it works and trying to get the salt. So we didn't have a clue what the salt was going to taste like or you know how it was how it was going to form or how long it was going to take and uh, or any of that. Um, so that was all what we've been trying to work out in the last year. And actually we were going to um, launch at the end of March, uh, but obviously due to um, lockdown and everything that was uh, canceled. Um, mm. And uh, we have, so we just sort of went with a sort of a slow sort of trickling uh, launch. Yeah. Um, so how long does it actually take then? Because the seawater and the, is it the spray and the wind that kind of picks it up kind of goes through as well so obviously you trickle the seawater down the tower but then I guess the elements are kind of because it's right on the coast yes um and then that sort of trickles down and then you have to take it to the pan and evaporate it so how long does it take from the water starting at the top to your finished salt crystals 
I wish I, I wish I could answer that question. Yeah. Uh, if you ask me in a year or so's time, I might be able to. Okay, okay. Uh, but as, I mean, the, we're affected by the weather. So, you know, if it's a, a lovely, dry, sunny day, you know, and the relative humidity is low, you know, we'll get a decent amount of evaporation. We'll, you know, in a day we might be able to, you know, sort of increase the percentage by 4%. But then if you go to a sort of fairly dreary day, which... Um, we get quite a few of those up here, you know, we'll be about sort of 0.1, of evaporation, which is not very much. So it really is dependent on the weather. And I, I don't really know the answer to that. When, yeah, once we get enough. it up to about sort of 20, 22%, then we take it off into the pan. And that process then takes about five days. Okay. Just, we sort of, we change the temperature and to get the crystals that we are looking for, the size and the shape and the thickness it takes us about sort of five days to get what we're looking for. Okay, fine. <laughs> so yeah, very weather dependent. That didn't, that didn't really answer <laughs> your question, did it? But we will, I think as we work out, you know, what difference the humidity and what difference the wind speed, the angle of the wind makes a huge difference. And we did a lot of research at the beginning to try and work out, you know, should we be straight on? Should we be, you know, so we ended up when I 45 degrees against the prevailing wind, but it's obviously not always like that. So everything makes a difference and uh you know we'll, we'll get better we'll work it out but i think that's also part of the the fun of it is actually you know it is something that evolves and changes and we will need to continue looking at it and hopefully improving as 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 we go along so definitely yeah the location will make such a difference you don't sound very scottish gregory <laughs> i know i disguise it very well don't I? I um i was i was born in uh in Asher, so i was born and bred um in Asher. i was just uh I was um, sent off to school and it got beaten out of me, I think. But um, <laughs> but no, I am 100% Scottish uh, and I will. Uh, I do support them on any sporting occasion, but I don't sound like it. And I, yeah, that's a question yeah. I get asked a lot, but there's nothing I can do about it. I could pretend, I suppose, but <laughs> me and accents don't. You could put on a thick accent for your for your tours and, and things like that. I could do, couldn't I? But I, yes, I'm start sloping off into some other accent or something but <laughs> um and I've seen you kind of at the tower and looking at the crystals and things with this now is it a refractometer is that correct yes it is yeah okay yeah, yeah. so tell me about that it's a great little gadget it's, um, <laughs> so yes so the refractometer works by um, refracting the sunlight so you can tell what the concentration is of the of the brine so we use it to um just to check to see how well the tower's working. It's more out of curiosity um, to see whether, you know, whether we're getting a 4% uh, day or a 0.1% day or, or a negative day, mm. which can happen on, on some days, which is not so good. Um, and uh, it's, uh, but we do actually also have a sort of an automatic, an automated one that um, calculates the percentage and stuff. So we, we, it's, the tower has a rain sensor on it as well, so we can stop it when it's raining. But we also have a, a sort of salinity sensor, so we can stop it uh, when it gets too concentrated. We can then move it onto the pan. But also, if the rain's coming down, uh, we can also we can stop any sort of, I suppose, not any rainwater getting into the system as well. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's, it's a nice gadget. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we've just we're just trying to buy another gadget at the moment, so which is a. Um, a thermal camera because to try and see where the um, the water comes down the tower uh, and you can see in some areas it flows better than other areas so there's obviously some large branches that sort of diverting the flow or something's diverting the flow 
And we, as I said before, are trying to get the largest surface area. So these sort of voids on the tower are not good. So if we have a thermal imaging camera, we're hoping to be able to see which way the, um, which way the flow is going or where it's being stopped and then hopefully make some amendments to the tower yeah. for that. So. Well, it sounds very technical. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> for something that's um, two, two chemical elements, isn't it? <laughs> Salt. Uh, uh, yes, it is, ultimately. Ultimately. I think, but, yeah, I think with... I suppose with um, with our salt, uh, it is slightly different to you know. I, I, you sort of compare it to Saxa salt, obviously, which is yeah. You know, that's sodium chloride. It's about as pure as you can get sodium chloride. Uh, it's ninety nine point nine nine percent or something like that. And um, whereas you know, you look at uh, our salt, for example, it's only probably about ninety four percent sodium chloride. It's other. It's got the other chemicals. I and mean, if you if you look at the see you know it's got over 100 different elements in it um you know so it in our the other sort of six percent is made up of various of those different elements you know and the bigger ones being sort of magnesium and calcium and potassium and sulfate so uh, but there are all those elements in there which then has a huge effect on the on the taste of, of the salt yeah and the sort of and, and how that therefore affects then the sort of food and things you put it on Onto. So, what? Um, how would you describe the taste of your salt? Uh, I think it's definitely you. You, you get the feeling of it's definitely taste of the sea. Originally, you get that sort of surge of the sea, but it's it's got a sort of rolling sweetness to it, and and I think that's down to the magnesium content and calcium content. But it's definitely a, a sort of much sweeter. It's not it's not so bold as you find that some other salts are. It's a, a much sort of mellower, mm-hmm. sweeter, rolling taste for it. Okay. And how do you think it's best to use your salt? Um, is it more, because it's got these gorgeous crystals, is it more of like for the texture and like finishing dishes? Or would you... Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, it's more, more the finishing side. I, I think, you know, to shove it in a, a boiling water with pasta, I don't think you'd um, appreciate it. I think, yeah, you know, the... Uh, you, I mean, you would notice a difference, but it's a sort of very subtle difference. It's more as a sort of finishing, you know, the sort of classic or, you know, on, on a steak or any sort of meat or anything like that, or, or on, you know, even even on fish or, or chocolate as well, on the sweet side of mm. things. You know, it's one of our, um, one of our, I suppose, customers or people who used it suggested watermelon. And actually, it's fantastic on, on watermelon. So I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever got any... Uh, watermelon you should, you should give it a shot okay but it works very well on sweet as well yeah i can imagine that um curing some egg yolks with it would be incredible and uh and using it in a um salted chocolate tart yes very good on that just to sort of across the top of it and uh we have actually produced some uh, large crystals which are probably you know a good inch um Square, so you know, some decent. Oh, uh, really? An yeah. inch square. Yeah. So, uh, which are which are fantastic. Um, we haven't quite worked out what we're going to do with them, but uh, you know, it is something that we'll sort of look to um, develop as we go on. But they're very difficult to package up, obviously. So, yeah, it's so fragile. So, thinking almost like sort of after eight style <laughs> boxes or something. Yeah, that's beautiful, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine it's going to survive in one piece without very careful like transportation. No, exactly. But we're just thinking, you know, on a, on a sort of chocolate torte or something like that, you know, it'd be good. To... Yeah, it would look amazing. But anyway, it's yeah, I don't know. We're not, uh, you know, we can 
can cook, but we're definitely not chefs. So I think when it comes to that sort of side of it, we definitely need help on what we should be doing. So. <laughs> well, um, you, you've sent some out to quite a few chefs, haven't you? So hopefully they'll kind of come back with some ideas. Yes, no, no, we have. I think we've, you know, we've had a few chefs come down to the town, and I, you know, everyone who has come has just, I suppose, been very polite and been amazed by it, uh, and uh, you know, gone through the process, and and we also do some uh, blind tastings as well to make sure they can test the difference. Which okay. I, you know, you, you feel very nervous about, it, but actually, uh, you know, they get it right, so that's fine. <laughs> you know, so um, so it's good. It's. Uh, it's it's nice to get the feedback and it's nice to get people coming down, especially in these um, difficult times and, you know, all the sort of troubles that they're going through to, to spare a bit of time and come and see us is, is, is fantastic. So. Yeah, well, um, I'm sad that I'm in London and and nowhere near you, um, otherwise I would have loved to come and visit it for myself. And we are absolutely more than welcome anytime. Oh, so thank we'd, you. We'd love to, love to have you. So. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, well, lastly, I would love to ask you what your favourite seasonal ingredient is at the moment, as here with the Doorstep Kitchen. We like to ask everyone this question just to kind of bring it all back to the British seasons and the best of what is happening at the moment. Uh, yes, I, I, I've probably got a couple. Am I allowed to or do I have to stick to one? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's allowed. OK, perfect. Well, the first one is, is something that we've already touched on, um, is uh, slows, mm. which has to be uh, because of the blackthorn mm-hmm. and just slow gin. In fact, I was making some last night and it's just a, uh, for me, it's a very sort of, we've done it done it for years, much long before we started using blackthorn to make salt, but it's, and it's, it always tastes different to me. I don't use a sort of recipe or anything. I do it all by eye and I sort of, you know, fill the slows up to about two thirds and then pour the sugar into yeah. it, just about covers it and then add gin and they all taste slightly different, but it is, this definitely this time of year to be making that. Yeah. Um, but the other other thing is 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 probably mushrooms, mm. you know. Um, but um, things like the sort of parasols and the sort of giant puffballs are more my sort of line of mushrooms, I think, rather than the usual ones people are looking for. My um, my in-laws have um, sort of pine, uh, sort of wooded area, and uh, you can always find a few uh, parasols there. Uh, which has been great, but I also remember a time driving down south once uh, with the family, and we stopped off at this um, this area. Uh, it was a sort of um, not a national trust place, but somewhere similar to that. And we went in and paid in, and we went in with our three children, and we wandered around. And in this garden, sort of one of the sort of planted areas, there were these huge. Uh, giant puffball mushrooms and we got mm-hmm. so excited we started picking them and walking out past the sort of people again, looking at us very strangely as we you know each of us had a giant puffball mushroom singing but they're just it's sort of that it's a very strange sort of you, when you sort of slice through a giant puffball mushroom it's kind of going a bit, sort of like cutting through a bit like sort of squeaky halloumi cheese or uh, and in between that and frozen sort of snow it's got that sort of same feeling but it's it's great, you know, they're, and they're, you know, they're around and they're wonderful. Brilliant. Well, great ingredients. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for, for, for having me and hopefully you can come up and see us soon. I know, I hope so. <laughs> Before we end today's show, we'll be hearing from Fergus Drennan, aka Fergus the Forager. He's a wild food experimentalist, educator and runs regular immersive foraging courses. 
At this time of the year, when the bulk of the mushroom fruiting is really coming to an end, there are still some great edibles to find, particularly thinking of the winter chanterelle and bluets. But actually, at this time of the year, well, really from kind of November all the way through December, I like to look for the brightly coloured fungi that are the wax caps. Now, these are really gorgeous looking fungi, some of which you can eat, some of which you can't. The really colourful ones, they dry really well and add a wonderful dash of colour to a mushroom dish. So wax caps, where can you find them? Well, they are generally found in really old kind of grassland. So that's grassland that hasn't had fertiliser on it for, for years and years because wax caps are very sensitive to fertiliser. It's often described as unimproved grassland. Might seem like a strange place to go, but cemeteries are a really good place to look for wax caps. Now, they come in reds and pinks and yellows, orange. You also have black and, and white and grey even. And they're very distinct. And we come to some guidebooks that are really good for describing and with excellent pictures of wax caps at the end of this. But let's talk about edibility and identification. So wax caps all formally were under the name of the genus Hygrosybe. Now Hygrosybe means watery head because they're kind of very moist. But with a lot of fungi and this genus, the Hygrosybe in particular, taxonomists have now split it into several others. And this, this can make both identification and, and kind of looking in guidebooks to, to kind of find the, the mushroom you're looking for quite difficult because it's now been split into let me see if I can pronounce these um por, porpolomopsis neohygrosybe cleophorus and cufophilus so that was all just one genus before and it kind of gets even more challenging for example I think the best edible wax cap is definitely the meadow wax cap. Delicious, it's one of the, the biggest, the most robust, um, and it's kind of slightly kind of peachy, orangey in colour. It's quite distinct in, it, in, it, in its colour. This was Hygrosybe pretensis, pretensis being of the meadow, meadow wax cap, but it's now Cufophilus pretensis. But just to make things a little more complicated, and this happens with some fungi, have a white form which is quite rare. It just so happens that in my front garden here, I have um, Corphophyllus pretensis var pallida, the white form, and in the back garden, I just have the regular form, and I eat both of them. Probably after that, the next best wax cap to eat, and one which you'll see very commonly, is the snowy wax cap. Now that's Corphophyllus virginius. But again, it's not quite straightforward and this is where you have to have a good sense of smell because you could possibly muddle this one for the cedarwood wax cap. This is Cufophilus russocoriaceus. <laughs> so yeah, they are really good to find and even if you decide not to pick wax caps, they are just gorgeous to look at and I guess when all the trees are starting to shed their leaves for kind of winter, it's, it's lovely to kind of see these brightly coloured things in the grass. Now, some guidebooks. 
Sometimes it's great to look for a guide just to a specific genre. So I'm thinking the genus Hygrosybe by David Bewertman. Then Fungi of Temperate Europe, Volume 1, is excellent because it includes ones that you could muddle it for. And written from a foraging perspective, the excellent Edible Want Mushrooms by Jeff Dan. Again, he includes information on things that you could muddle them for, which is really useful. Anyway, colder months are coming, but the brightly coloured mushrooms are still out there. So go and check them out, the wax caps. Thanks, Fergus. Excellent knowledge of the latter names there. I'm very impressed. Please remember when foraging, make sure you're 100% certain before picking and trying anything. So no nibbling. There are around 130 poisonous plants in the UK. That's all for this episode. But if you enjoyed it, please do rate, review and subscribe as it makes all the difference. Next week, we are joined by farmer Matt Chatfield, who's giving sheep a great retirement and producing an incredibly tasty mutton that is sold to top restaurants. See you next time.